This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. I've often used that well-worn and possibly trite old adage that truth is stranger than fiction. And if I were a novelist and writing a biography about our subject for today, I would gather that it would be accepted pretty much as a piece of fiction, since the birth of our subject would be way back around the year 1198 in County Kildare, Ireland. And no, I'm not talking about St. Patrick. In fact, you may not be familiar with this person at all. So how do we know so much about him? Well, I'm certain God had that all planned out. So let me start out by telling you the end of the story first. Lawrence O'Toole, I told you he was Irish. Well, during his lifetime, he became a very well-known person, recognized for not only his holiness, but his knowledge, his abilities, and yes, even his miracles and bishopry. At his time in history, by a set of circumstances, he died in France, which is very important to his story. You see, France during that period was entering upon a very enlightened age, and possibly it was a springboard toward an advanced civilization where France was taking a leadership position in study, education, philosophy, history, and so forth. Well, Lawrence had gone to France, and even in his desire to focus attention away from himself, his qualities and holiness were like glistening flares in the night. One could not ignore him, and unfortunately he was called to his eternal reward while in France. The French's burgeoning desire to know more about Lawrence saw them initiate a comprehensive study about his life as seen by those with whom he lived, with those with whom he worked, those who knew him, those who benefited from his efforts, and just about everyone with whom he came in contact with and then they painstakingly chronicled the story of his life down to almost the minute detail. So, about 900 plus years later, we now have a pretty comprehensive story of the life of the saint whom we now know as St. Lawrence O'Toole. So, with that preamble, let's start at the beginning. In the days of Lawrence's birth, Ireland was divided up within many districts and areas, and in each geographical location, there was always one principal leader who would assume the lofty title of king. But in actuality, there was little evidence of royalty, and there was always a battle or skirmish for more power or prestige, and the fights were not always fair. In fact, they generally were not. So that was the time that greeted the birth of Lawrence Atul about 1128. Lawrence's father, Maurice, was the king of his district, and he decided to name the new baby Connor, which had been a popular name in the O'Toole lineage, and that name would certainly help maintain the family's long-term reputation. And when the time for his baptism arrived, Maurice sent the baby some twenty miles distant to be baptized by a bishop, where the local 
king, if you will, was named Donag O'Connor. This would be a gesture of friendship and peace between the two kings. Now, strange as it may seem to us, neither the father or the mother accompanied the baby, and in their place were several members of the O'Toole household. Well, on the way, they met a seer, a man who claimed to be able to see in the future, but the church has certainly not recognized him as such. At any rate, the seer asked the name chosen for the baby and was told Connor. Well, the seer reacted very vociferously, claiming that this child shall be magnificent on earth and glorious in heaven. He added, He shall rule over many, both rich and poor, and by the name of Lawrence I order him to be called. Well, they explained that the father had chosen the other name, and they were reluctant to make the change, whereupon the seer was firm in his order and told them not to worry because he himself would go and speak to the father so they would not be blamed. Why the name Lawrence? Well, it is believed that the name was derived from the laurel plant, which was a part of the evergreen family and and could possibly represent not only his evergreen faith, but the laurel wreath was also a symbol of victory, and this could be the baby's future heavenly reward for living a life of grace and holiness. Somewhat satisfied, the baby was named Lawrence, and as a gesture of trust, the baby stayed for quite a while at the home of the local king, where he was treated well and as almost a member of the family. You see, such was the custom of the day where symbols were very important, and he eventually was returned home. Now, there were constant battles going on between the local kings, and when Lawrence was about ten, he became a a pawn in the relationship with his own father and a nearby king named Dermot McMurrow, who had a reputation for violence and mayhem. And since these battles were ongoing, it was important to have a hostage to prevent one king from attacking the next, and the more powerful got the hostage, which turned out to be young Lawrence. And even at such an early and innocent age of probably his early teens, he was often kept in chains, underfed, underclothed in the cold winter weather, and generally mistreated. Well, Lawrence's father eventually learned how badly his son was being treated, but there was little he could do without risking Lawrence's life, and this was to continue with Lawrence being a a virtual prisoner for about two years. Eventually, the elder O'Toole managed to capture twelve of Dermot's men, who decided exchanging twelve men was better than keeping one young captive. And so Lawrence was set free with the exchange of one boy for twelve soldiers being made through the intermediary of the of the Bishop of Glendalough. And so Lawrence would spend perhaps twelve days at the monastery of Glendalough, which had been founded by St. Kevin in the 500s, and its tranquil and beautiful settings is as peaceful and beautiful today as it was so many years ago, with many landmarks still remaining, 
The bishop took Lawrence into his home and provided for his spiritual well-being until his father could come and take him back home. And during these few days, the bishop was careful in instructing Lawrence with the words of many prayers and devotions. Well, the monastery, with some buildings hundreds of years old, and his seeing firsthand the beauty of the faith, Lawrence was mesmerized by all that surrounded him in the beauty and power of God. He loved how the religious would gather at the end of the day to join together in prayer as the monks chanted their devotions. Well, the big day finally arrived, and Lawrence's father came to pick up his son, and as his father chatted with the bishop, it must have occurred to the elder O'Toole that it might be to his political advantage to have one of his four sons as a religious, and he made the comment that upon his arrival back home, he would draw lots to see which one of his sons he would send back to the monastery. Well, the bishop saw right through the father's scheme and evidenced very little interest in the proposition, but young Lawrence was quick to respond with great enthusiasm and a broad smile. He said, There is no need to draw lots to see who will join the community. I am willing to be educated in clerical doctrine. Well, Lawrence had made a great impression on the bishop as well as the monks, and they all received his desire to join them with great enthusiasm. And so Lawrence stayed at Glendalough as the bishop began his training. I would add that if you were to go to Glendalough today, you would immediately be struck by the beauty and serenity of the entire area, with many many remnants still standing of that monastery that was founded so many years ago, where time seems for a moment to have stood still, as as paying a silent tribute to those who so faithfully preserved their faithful traditions. Little information details the daily life of Lawrence other than he was trained by the bishop, who took Lawrence under his wing much like an adopted son and taught him carefully the duties and responsibilities of a religious and a priest. However, we do not know the exact date of Lawrence's ordination to the priesthood, but the record is obvious of the tremendous respect that was given to Lawrence by the monks of Glendalough, so much so that by the age of just 25, he was chosen as the abbot, and while he would only serve in that capacity for perhaps a short seven or eight years, he would be revered as the greatest abbot of Glendalough since St. Kevin himself. Of course, there were some who initially felt he was far too young to become an abbot, but they, too, were quickly won over by his obvious holiness, devotion, and hard work as well as his knowledge. Well, times were far from easy, and that was a time when there were frequent famines, and the monks and residents of the area suffered from their lack of food. However, Lawrence had used all of his own personal resources that had come to him through his father to provide for not only the monastery, but the other residents of Glendalough. 
they also allowed him the opportunity to start building up the monastery, both physically and spiritually. He was now just 26 years old. He was never one for the status quo, but to build for the greater glory of God. These few examples show what kind of man Lawrence O'Toole was really like, and we have to remember how difficult the times were in those days. To make a comparison of today would really boggle one's mind. In the year of 1147, the Bishop of Glendalough, who had been his advocate from the beginning, had died, and now that successor was resigning his position as bishop. Well, the population of the area, as well as most of the religious, were encouraging Lawrence to become bishop, and this presented a difficulty. You see, at that point in time, the canonical age to become a bishop was 30, and although he was close to that age, he refused, even though to be both bishop and abbot of Glendalough would have been a position of immense power and prestige. He He felt that his first responsibility was to improve the monastery and to improve the religious buildings of Glendalough. And build he did. This was an era known for dynamic and holy leaders who were reforming the churches of Ireland. There were two archbishops of Armagh, Celsus and St. Malachi. Well, Lawrence was now added to that distinguished list. There is no question as to the immense love that Lawrence felt for Glendalough, and while from time to time it would be his refuge for peace, prayer, and meditation, he was being called by the church for more and more responsibilities. Somewhere toward the end of 1161, in his early thirties, the Archbishop of Dublin had died and Lawrence was named to be his successor. There were several factions governing the Dublin area, including his old nemesis Dermot, whose brother-in-law was also a candidate for the position. But Lawrence's reputation was now referred to as the greatest abbot ever to govern Glenderloe, since St. Kevin himself, and so Lawrence was accepted by all the rival parties. Perhaps playing a major role in those decisions was his reputation as not only an excellent leader and administrator, but a man who built churches and was a staunch friend of the poor. It was even written of him that he had the favor of many of the old Celtic saints and that he was known to have healed the sick merely by laying hands on them, or in some cases just by breathing on them. Plus, he had the ability to read hearts, to know what was truly in the mind of someone with whom he was speaking. In spite of all the adulation and enthusiasm for him to be named to the position, Lawrence felt himself to be unworthy of such a high honor, and only reluctantly, because of the pressure put upon him, did he finally accept the position. So in the summer of 1162, he was consecrated Archbishop of Dublin. He was not yet 35 years old. And there are several points that need to be mentioned about the example of the life he lived. 
Despite his lofty position, he lived a simple life with many sacrifices. He wore a simple religious habit, even under his bishop's robes when necessary. He would generally eat with the other religious in the refectory without fancy meals. He never ate meat, and he fasted on bread and water on Wednesdays and Fridays, and there were many days in which he simply fasted all day just for the greater glory of God. Dublin, in that time and period, was not a city known for religious scruples or sacrifice, but he was to become an example, a motivator. Now, as you can imagine, there were many poor people living in Dublin and in his area, and he would personally see that at least 30 people or more received a decent meal every day. He was a religious leader in every sense of the word, and he lived his vows to the most minute detail. And when he could, or when he felt he needed spiritual rejuvenation, well, there was always Glendalow. When he would retreat there, he would go to find the peace and solace of Glendalow, but he would not stay in the monastery, but in the place known as St. Kevin's Hermitage. Now, while the exact location may not be known today, it is popularly believed to be little more than a, a tiny cave nestled into one of the beautiful cliffs bordering the lake. The cave was so small that it was often referred to simply as St. Kevin's Bed. It is thought that Lawrence would spend his time in the cave meditating and in prayer. I've heard that the location is just about as inaccessible today as it was in the days of Saints Kevin and Lawrence. But as I said, if you ever go to Glendalow, you'll have a perfect understanding. I want to make a brief mention about St. Malachi, who influenced several monasteries and religious orders, and they were referred to as Aroatian canons because they were from a region in France that I cannot quite pronounce, and their charism was the care of cathedrals and churches. That had been a dream of St. Malachi, and where he had failed in his desire, Lawrence succeeded. So in a way, Lawrence was responsible for St. Malachi's dream becoming a reality. Perhaps one reason Lawrence would seek sanctuary in Kevin's cave was that after strenuously fighting for his flock's guidance and their dedication to the faith, he would go there to charge his batteries, so to speak, or at least to repair his interior spirit as he examined his own spirituality and prayed for the guidance in effectively leading his flock into the ways of the Lord. When he would emerge from his time in the cave, he was often described as reminding the other friars of Moses coming down from the mountain filled with new fervor and zeal. Perhaps his greatest frustration was the realization that his flock had not been properly prepared for the lives they were expected to lead in their practice of the faith. To him it seemed they were so blinded with the love of the world and the pleasures it offered that they seemed oblivious to their true responsibility to God 
and following his commands. One can only imagine the, the tremendous burden this placed on his shoulders and in the heart of Lawrence O'Toole, a burden that he accepted and a challenge from which he would not be deterred regardless of the time and effort that would be required to make a difference. Perhaps when everything is said and done, whether for the saints, the religious, or us, really making a difference is a mighty challenge. And his problems weren't just reserved for Ireland. The King of England had tremendous power over the Irish, and to try and resolve the dispute, Lawrence sailed to England. Since Lawrence had such a powerful reputation, and the journey to England at that time was dangerous, many people sailed on the same ship as Lawrence because they thought His Holiness would protect them. However, the ship met with a violent storm, and the passengers became hysterical, but Lawrence remained calm, and then reminded them that many of them had failed to contribute to the building of new churches, and so they made a run for their cash, and when they gave it to Lawrence, he knelt and prayed, and the winds stopped howling, and the waves became calm. Lawrence made no promises, but considered it just another fruit from his life of prayer. Arriving in England, Lawrence stayed with the monks at Christ Church, where he spent much time in the chapel praying that all would go well. In fact, he prayed all night, which was not uncommon. But on the following day, as he was going up to the altar to officiate at Mass, there was a, a madman intent on making him a martyr and raced up to him wielding a mighty walking stick. When he reached Lawrence, the man struck the stick with all his might, striking Lawrence in the head and knocking him completely out. Well, the assembled multitude was certain that he had been killed by such a violent blow, but Regaining his consciousness, Lawrence asked that holy water be poured on his head, and the bleeding stopped immediately, and then Lawrence continued as planned with the activities of the day. The man was sentenced to be hanged, but Lawrence intervened and saved his life. While the king of England would not budge, Lawrence then was called to Rome for the Third Lateran Council, called by Pope Alexander III. While at the council, Lawrence outlined many proposals for strengthening the church in Ireland, and the pope was so impressed with the knowledge and sincerity of Lawrence that he accepted all the rules and regulations put forth by Lawrence. Well, Lawrence was given more authority by the Vatican, but he continued to feed the poor and shepherd his flock, even though he was disliked by the king. Still, though, he attempted to do his job and followed the king to France, where he stayed at a monastery in Normandy, where his health began to rapidly fail. And when taken into the monastery, he remarked, "'This is my resting place forever.'" Receiving the last rites, he was encouraged to make a formal will for his estate, and he replied, Of what do you speak? I thank God I have not a penny left in the world to dispose of. Whatever he had had, he had given to the poor. And Lawrence was called to his home in heaven on the 18th of November, 
in 1188. It's been written that on the same night there was a man living in Dublin who had a dream. He was concerned and told that in his dream he was in Christ's Church Cathedral in Dublin, and then as he looked up he saw the altar falling down on him and breaking into little pieces as it did. The next morning as he described his dream he added, the archbishop must have died. Later it was determined that his dream indeed was the same date and time as Lawrence's death. But that was not all. Outside the monastery where Lawrence died, all those in the area saw a huge brightness light up the whole sky so brightly that they feared the monastery was on fire. From that night, there was a large stream of pilgrims visiting the cathedral, and many cures were reported based on his intercession, including a small boy who had been born deaf and dumb who was now able to speak. The accounts of the miracles and the life of Lawrence were sent to the Vatican, and as I mentioned earlier, an exhaustive study of his life was made and the reports sent to the Vatican. And on the 5th of December in 1225, Lawrence O'Toole became a saint. Looking at his life, I was struck with his singleness of purpose, and that was simply to serve God through prayer, and not only a respect for his fellow man, but a desire to be a friend. He was not satisfied with a quickie prayer and then back to his daily routine, because his prayers were truly a conversation with God. He spoke to God, and then he listened to God with his heart. He taught me a good example, too. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.